You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Good morning, Redeemer family. And good morning to those of you who are visitors with us this morning. Maybe you're here for the first time. If you don't know me, my name is Rick Bowers, and I have the joy and the honor of serving as one of your pastors here. And that's an exciting thing for me to say. Uh, if you guys have followed the story of my family and I for any time, you know, we arrived about two years ago in a church planting residency uh, here at Redeemer, and uh, it's only been since uh, the beginning of last month that we've come in in a role as uh, I'm now a pastor and an elder here with you guys, walking alongside you as we follow Jesus together, uh, and we're really thankful for that. You guys have loved us since we came in. You've welcomed us as family You've encouraged us, uh, you've uplifted us, and we're just excited about this next season and the time God has uh, for us ahead with you guys. We're excited to, to be here with you. Uh, this morning, we are going to continue our journey through Mark chapter 6, as Chris just read for us this morning, verses 1 through 13. Now, today we've got two texts that seem a little bit different, and what we're going to do is we're going to take those two texts and we're going to look at them together. We're going to pull a thread through both of them. And here's why we're going to do that today. Because the roar of the gospel of Mark is that the king is here. The long-awaited Israelite Messiah king has come. He has arrived. And as he's arrived, he is breaking his kingdom into this world. That's what Mark wants us to see. That's what Mark is communicating all throughout his gospel. And I think by looking at this text the way we're going to look at it today, we can keep our focus where Mark's focus is. And I think we're going to be deeply challenged today, and I hope we're going to be incredibly encouraged today by our text as well. If you haven't already, go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark uh, chapter 6, 1 through 13. Well, over the past few weeks in Mark, we've been given these, these views, these snapshots of the authority of Jesus on display. The first thing we saw is that Jesus calms a storm. This is his authority uh, over the natural realm of our world. And then we see as Jesus encounters a demon-possessed man running around a cemetery. This is horror movie stuff, right? This is maybe the sermon we preach on Halloween. Jesus encounters a demon-possessed man among the tombs, and he casts the demons out of him. This is Christ's authority over the spiritual realm. And then Jesus, we talked about this last week, Jesus heals a woman who's been sick for a very long time. This is Christ's authority over the physical realm. This is Jesus, the king, and his authority and the inbreaking of his kingdom into our world. And it builds into this crescendo, which we also talked about last week, where Jesus raises a young girl from the dead. He brings a dead girl back to life. Bringing dead things to life is something that God does. Right, church? And so we get to see this. And Jordan reminded us last week that even in the most tragic moments of our lives, Christ is right there with us. It's a sweet truth that we can always remember and always count on. Now, the disciples are around Jesus during all of this. They're following along with him. They're learning the way of their king, a lot like we are as we read Mark together. And there's been a lot of what we would probably call successful ministry taking place. The disciples have been witnessing a lot. Christ has been doing all these wonderful things. But today, 
something different is going to happen in our text. Today, the disciples have something new that they're going to learn. And there's something that we're going to see as well. This is going to be something that will be very, very important for the disciples. It will be crucial for them as followers of Christ. And it will be a catalyst, we're going to see, to the spread of the gospel message. Not only is it a lesson that we're going to see today, but we're also going to get a promise. We're also going to see a promise, a promise that held true for Christ himself, a promise that held true for the disciples, and a promise that holds true for us today in 2022 in Round Rock, Texas. Let me pray, and then we will start walking through our text together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that by it we can know you. I ask that you would open up our hearts and our minds right now, whatever things we've walked in this door with, whatever things that we have um, brought in here, whatever things are on our mind. Father, I just ask that we can lay those things at your feet, that we can unburden ourselves at your feet and just ask to receive from you this morning. I ask that you open up our mind to see more of who you are, that your spirit convict us of our sin, and that Christ shepherd us along the way through his life and through what we see in Scripture. Be with us. We love you. Amen. So Jesus has been on this incredible mission, and he's brought the disciples with him to teach them and to show them his ways. And Mark tells us that after these amazing acts that we just talked about, Mark tells us that Jesus takes the disciples and they go back to Nazareth. So this is Jesus' hometown, right? Jesus of Nazareth returns. Jesus and his band of brothers go back into Nazareth. And as Jesus is here in Nazareth, he enters into a synagogue. He enters into a place of worship. Now, this feels familiar to us. If we've been walking along through Mark, if you've been here through this journey, this feels familiar. Christ has done this before. He's made his way into a synagogue, and he starts teaching. We saw this a while back in Mark 1. Jesus goes into a synagogue in Capernaum, and he starts teaching there. And Mark tells us in Capernaum, the people who heard Jesus' teaching were astonished. They were amazed. They couldn't believe the authority that he taught with. They couldn't believe the truth that he was teaching. They were amazed and astonished at this man who was teaching in their synagogue. But in Nazareth, we're going to see it's a little bit different. We're going to see that it's a different kind of astonishment in Nazareth. In Capernaum, they were amazed at the authority and the truth with which Christ was teaching. In Nazareth, they're amazed that this man... This man is teaching with any authority, is teaching with any wisdom at all whatsoever. Let's look at verses 2 and 3 in our text today. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? And brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? This is not the same kind of astonishment that we witnessed in Capernaum. These listeners are amazed that Jesus the Nazarene, the simple carpenter, the nobody that they've known for such a long time, they're amazed that he's teaching with any wisdom or any authority at all. See, the people who are here, they know Jesus. They've been around him. They've seen him grow up. They know he came from Nazareth, kind of a nowhere bill. They know that he's nothing now. He's just a carpenter. 
They've heard of his works and they're seeing him teach, but there's something in their minds, there's something in their view, there's something going on in their head and their hearts that they cannot get past. There's something that for them is bringing on wave after wave of unbelief. The people here in the synagogue in Nazareth are too familiar with Jesus. He's just too simple and ordinary for them. He's just a carpenter. He's certainly not the kind of man who would be a Messiah. He's certainly not the kind of man who would be a king. He's not worthy of following. He's unspectacular. And this is all that they can see in their field of view of Christ. One commentator describes this as Christ's veil of ordinariness. He's plain to them. He's ordinary to their eyes. This calls to mind the prophet Isaiah. Do you remember what Isaiah would say about the coming Messiah king? In Isaiah 53, he writes, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. This moment in Nazareth is a a type of fulfillment of Isaiah's promise. There is nothing about this man which is beautiful. There is nothing about this man which is desirable to them or seems amazing. This is just Jesus. That's who this man is. We know this man. We know his family. His sisters are right here. We know this this carpenter. He's too familiar. He's too normal to them. They can't overlook it. And notice their speech here. This isn't innocent questioning. It's derogatory defamation. See, particularly, let's look at verse 3. They call Jesus the son of Mary. Don't miss that in this text. If you've read your Bible for any amount of time or you just so happen to be a a scholar of of the Israelite people and their history, you would know that the Israelites refer to each other by the names of their fathers. So you might be David, son of Jonas, or you might be Avery, daughter of Kevin. But that's not what they say here. They don't say Jesus, son of Joseph. They say son of Mary. See, it's no secret in their eyes that Jesus is an illegitimate child. And this is a way of calling his identity, his very identity, into question. This man doesn't even have a father. Who is this man? This is not a simple questioning taking place. It becomes a very unpleasant scene. And when Mark wraps up the actions of the crowd, he uses a phrase. He says, they took offense at him. It's in verse 3. This word offense is actually where we get the English word scandal. Your translations may say they're repelled by him, or they fall away from him, or they fell foul of him. The point is they're repelled to the point of abandoning Jesus and his message. It's just too scandalous for them. Their familiarity with Jesus has become a stumbling block to their faith. At this moment, Jesus is experiencing rejection from the people who should have known him best, from the people who we might think, and those are, those are the hometown people. They know Christ. They, they would definitely accept him, but they're not. Jesus calls this, this out in verse 4. He repeats a common proverb of the day and says their familiarity is their reason for unbelief. But what does he do? He doesn't condemn them. He doesn't call down fire from above. He doesn't yell or shout at them. What happens next feels almost worse. Look at verse 6. He marveled because of their unbelief. What on this earth could make the king of the universe 
stand amazed. The unbelief of people who are familiar with him. When I grew up, my parents uh, were awesome parents, um, and they disciplined me awesomely as well. I wasn't a bad kid, at least I don't think I was a bad kid, but one of the ways my parents would discipline me was a whipping. So I would get a whipping when I was young. Um, that's what we called it. We called it a whipping. Uh, hate it, love it. It was just a form of discipline, and it worked for me. It affected me in certain ways, but there was something else my parents would do to me that would affect me even more. And that was when I would get a look from my parents. And I don't, and you guys laughing, I know you're familiar with the look, so. But I'm not talking about the look you get when it's like, hey, young man, you better straighten up or you're going to get a whipping. Like, that's not the look that I'm talking about. I'm talking about the look that my parents would give me that would really communicate, son, what are you doing? What are you doing? The way you're behaving right now, the way you're acting right now is not reflective of of what you know to be true. It's not reflective of the way we've raised you. It's not reflective of who you are. What, what are you doing, son? I feel like this is similar to our scene here. The amazement of Jesus is only recorded twice in Scripture. It's recorded once in Luke, where Jesus is amazed at the belief of someone, and it's recorded right here, where Jesus is amazed at the unbelief. Of people. This amazement of Jesus seems to say, you of all people know me. You know me in ways nobody else has. You've been around since my youth. You've seen me grow up. And now you're stumbling over this familiarity, over this ordinariness. I'm amazed. Family, I feel like I'd be negligent if I didn't pause here on our walk through the text today. These are people of the God of Israel in this synagogue who've come to worship. And they are so familiar with Jesus Christ, they are unmoved by him. Is that anywhere in our hearts today? Have we become so familiar with Jesus Christ that we feel bored? That we feel like it's just ordinary? Maybe the seemingly ordinary way of following Christ day in, day out has begun to stir unbelief or distance in our hearts. You know, there's a way in which we can be brought up in the church or where we can come in these doors every Sunday. There's a way in which we can hear the message of Jesus proclaimed. We can be around believers. We can worship. There's a way in which we can do all these things and we can follow Jesus try to follow Jesus in the day in, day out, ordinary walk of our life, and we can just begin to be unmoved by him. And unbelief can stir in our hearts, especially when we're in a culture where churches tend to be sleepy and where entertainment seems to be bright and always in front of us and loud, and there's a million other things to take our attention and our time and to pull us away. We can grow little by little, step by step, in a dangerous indifference to the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you feel that stirring in your heart in the room this morning, I'd ask you to see what happens next in our text. Look at verse 5. He could do no mighty work there. 
He could do no mighty work where people so familiar with him are unmoved by him. Jesus works in accordance with our faith. Remember, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So according to the faith of the people here in this area, Jesus does what he can, which isn't much, and then he moves on. The fruit of the ministry of Christ does not grow in places of unbelief. But look at the text. It wasn't that Jesus isn't willing. It wasn't that Jesus didn't go into the synagogue and preach. He didn't, make, he didn't not make his way around and try to teach or try to heal. He did. He's willing. He's willing to engage, but they must respond. We must respond. So this morning, if you find yourself, if that's stirring in you, just feeling too familiar with Christ, too, like things are just too ordinary, things are just too normal, you're just getting tired of the day in, day out, I just ask you to run to Jesus. Run to him, and I promise he will help you. I promise. Do you know how I know this is true? Later on in Mark 9, we're going to see somebody pray a prayer, a man prays a prayer, that maybe this morning should be yours. I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, Jesus, help my boredom, help my feeling of ordinariness, help these things that are stirring in my heart that are just making me weary, help me. You're too familiar to me. You're too simple to me. I believe, but help me. Maybe that can be our prayer this morning if we're feeling that in our hearts. I promise Christ will help you. Well, the disciples have seen all of this that took place in Nazareth. They've been present. They're there to witness this rejection. And we're about to see this is all part of Jesus' plan. Mark tells us that after this synagogue scene in Nazareth, Jesus begins to send out the disciples. This is the second portion of our text today. Back in Mark 3, this is exactly what Jesus promised he would do. He was going to send them out. The disciples have been with Jesus. They followed him all over. They've learned his message. And now he's sending them out on his mission to put their hands to the work. And Mark says Jesus gives them authority. So they're sent on his mission with his message, the gospel message, and with his authority. And then he gives them some practical guidance, which you could totally unpack here this morning. We don't have time to do that. That's your Sunday night homework assignment. Go home, look through the rest of that text, and see what, see what it means. There's lots of wonderful things to uncover there. Here's three things that may jump out at you there. Number one, he tells the disciples to go in pairs. This is probably based on the idea that the Old Testament idea that you need two people to have a valid witness and just because it makes sense. Ministry's hard, doing ministry's hard, go in pairs. Number two, he tells them to travel light, travel simple. It's not the equipment that matters, not what you're bringing that matters. It's the message, it's the, mis the mission and the authority with which I'm sending you. He says, stay in places that welcome you. Depend on the hospitality of others. Do as much ministry as you can in places where you're welcome. So they're going to go. The disciples are going to go out, and they're going to preach, and they're going to heal, and they're going to cast out demons. They're going to do all these wonderful things that Jesus has done, all these things that Jesus has modeled for them and taught, the way of their king. They're going to go do all of these things. It's their turn. The Padawan are now Jedi. There we go. All right, all right. For those of you who like Star Wars, it came to my mind because we've been watching the, the Star Wars, uh, new Star Wars show lately, so I was hoping you guys would enjoy that as well. 
Here's what I want you to catch in this text. Not only will they do all these wonderful things that Jesus has done, they're not only going to do all these wonderful things, but they're also going to be rejected, just like Jesus was. Not everywhere they go will there be people who accept this message of the gospel. They're going to encounter unbelief. They're going to encounter rejection. So what are they to do? Well, Jesus has modeled for them what to do in Nazareth at the rejection at the synagogue. And he mentions here that when they encounter rejection, in verse 11, he says, they're to shake the dust off that's on their feet. When rabbis would travel through Gentile areas as they left, or as they traveled in and out of the Holy Land, they would shake the dust off from that unbelieving area that was on their sandals. And they would do this in a symbolic way. It was to symbolize the judgment of God coming against an unbelieving people. God's judgment coming against an unbelieving people, not their judgment. You follow? That's what Christ wants the disciples to understand here. He's saying, you guys need to behave the same way I have when I was rejected in Nazareth. When people reject my message and my mission. You're not to fight. You're not to get all passive aggressive. You're not to puff yourself up in self-righteousness. You're not to picket and shout hateful things. You're not to get on social media and blast everybody you can. You're not to ruin my witness. When you encounter hostile and hardened unbelief, proclaim the gospel truth. Proclaim the gospel message and then move on. God will either continue to pursue those hardened and hostile people and he will change their hearts or judgment from him will come against them because of their hardness of hearts. But you guys, you guys, keep preaching my message and keep moving on. And the reason Jesus tells them this is because he knows that rejection will not stop the mission of God. So the disciples head out on mission, and they come back, and they tell Jesus what happened. And our text ends there this morning. So what do we do with this piece of Mark's gospel? In light of the kingdom movement that we talked about earlier that Mark is communicating, remember the king is here, and the kingdom of God is crashing in to our world. In light of that, let's see the bigger picture here, and let's be good students of Scripture. One of the wonderful things about our God and about the Scriptures that He gives us is this is the primary way we come to know His character and His nature. And one of the ways God uh, communicates that to us through His Word is through repetition, repetition in narrative, repetition in themes. He probably does that because we can be really slow to learn sometimes. And it's a grace and a mercy that he does. He repeats patterns that communicate to us his character and his nature. What we're seeing here when we look at the big picture is another pattern in the nature of who God is and in the mission that God has. Here it is. Rejection will never mean the end of his mission. Rejection will never mean the advancement, the end of the advancement of the kingdom of God into our world, but... Rejection will come. Listen, Jesus is not only teaching the disciples what to do when they're rejected. Jesus is promising them that for those who follow him, rejection is inevitable. It's going to happen. Rejection will come. Jesus experienced it in Nazareth. 
and the disciples are going to experience it. He's showing them that the kingdom of God will continue to advance upon our world even through the hardened rejection of it. Did the disciples need this lesson? Did they need this promise? Of course they did. Because as our story moves on, they're going to see Jesus rejected in a way that's far more severe than what they encountered back in Nazareth. Some of them are going to witness as Jesus is drug out of the garden in the middle of prayer. Some of them are going to witness as he's brought before different councils, as the crowds say, give us the murderer instead of the Christ. They're going to see more of this rejection. As he's nailed to a cross, as he hangs, as he is crucified until he is dead, as he does this for their sins and for our sins, the disciples are going to witness this rejection. I can't even imagine at this point what they're thinking. This man we followed is dead. But then there's victory. Then Jesus is going to rise in victorious triumph over sin, death, and Satan so that if we put our faith in him, we can be saved. The cross is evidence to the disciples and to us that rejection does not stop the mission of God. And this lesson of rejection is going to matter even as history keeps moving. The disciples are going to need this lesson as the gospel spreads. Look with me at the book of Acts. It should be on the screen behind me. In Acts 1, a resurrected Jesus tells his disciples, you guys will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. How does that movement of the gospel happen? How does it advance? Look at Acts 8. And there arose on that day a great persecution, rejection, against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Did you hear that? Jesus tells them to take the gospel to the world and see that it gets there. It gets there through rejection. This is one of the biggest catalysts to the spread of the gospel in the early church. What Jesus is teaching the disciples in Mark 6 will prepare them for what's to come. For most of them, it will even prepare them for their death. History records that 10 of these 12 men would be put to death for the message and the mission of Jesus. Boiled alive, stoned, beheaded, flayed, burned, clubbed, crucified, rejection that leads to death. And with their death, the gospel was lost. No. No, that's not the way it goes, family. Because God's mission will not be stifled by the hearts of men. That was true for them. That rejection is promised, but it's not the end. And that remains true for us today, Redeemer family. We follow the very same rejected Messiah. And we find ourselves in the middle of a culture that seems to be not only rejecting Christ, but growing in hostility towards him. And some of us sit in despair over this. For some of us, this riddles us with fear it riddles us with anxiety, looking at the culture around us, looking at the world around us, thinking about the future to come. Fear begins to rule our lives, becomes the reason we make decisions in our lives, becomes the reason we do all kinds of things, the reason we can't sleep at night. 
We hear news of horrible sins among denominations, and they are deplorable. We listen to podcasts about broken churches and broken church leaders. We see news reports that the future is hopeless for our kids. They're all leaving the church, and they're all going to leave the church, and what's the point of the church? We read articles about how science is disproving religion, and we buy into all the media hype and all the media frenzy that would rather have us sit and stare at a Christianity car wreck than press into the promises of God that are in this book right in front of us. And we wonder why fear and anxiety rule our lives. Look at what God is teaching us in his word today. God's mission will go on. There is no rejection that will stop it. But rejection will come. So what do we do? Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, James says. Paul will say in Romans, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. How do we get to hope from suffering? How do we get to joy from rejection? We remember the promises of Mark 6. God's mission will go on. We remind ourselves of the dark night of the crucifixion and the bright light of the resurrection. God's mission will go on. We remind ourselves of Habakkuk 2.14, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We remind ourselves that Jesus is coming back to make all things new. Rejection doesn't stop our God. We know how this thing ends. We've read the book. Have unceasing joy, family, even when we face rejection. And we should also realize that the same culture which rejects Jesus, doesn't like to tell the whole story of his followers. Listen to some recent information shared in a book. This is the book the ladies are reading together this summer, so here's a plug for the ladies' uh, uh, book, book, book club that's going on this summer. Did you know that sociologists actually predict an increasingly religious world? With Christianity all the way out to 2060, which was the end of this study, still being the largest global belief system. That by 2060, the number of those who identify as having no religious belief will actually decline. Nearly 40% of Americans raised in unbelieving homes will become religious. Most of them will be Christians. Historic Christianity is outcompeting theologically liberal faith in North America. And within China, a country who has forcibly blocked religion, there are 68 million Christians with estimates that there will be more Christians in China than the U.S. by 2030, and that China will be a majority Christian country by 2050. Do you know that the underground church is on fire inside Iran? Rejection doesn't stop the mission or the message of the gospel. It just makes it grow more. This is true both in our world and in your own life personally. We are promised rejection, church family, because of our commitment to Jesus Christ and the good and loving gospel message we share with our lives and with our mouths. In John 15, Christ himself reminds us that if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Jesus isn't asking us to go to places he hasn't already been. When we're rejected, church family, we keep going. That's the way of our king. 
we keep loving, we keep pursuing, we keep inviting in, we keep opening our homes, we keep opening our tables, we keep coming in here every Sunday, we keep gathering with believers outside of this room during the week, we keep praying, we keep reading this book, we keep worshiping, and we keep going along with our dad on his mission because we're on a mission that will not fail. And God promises that nothing stops his mission. He's done it and showed those promises to us time and time again through his word and through his church, by his spirit, for his glory, his mission will not fail. His mission to rescue sinners. As we close up this morning, I think we know that that's true. I think you and I know that that's true. Even as we sit here, we may understand that is true. God's mission to rescue sinners doesn't stop. Do you know how we know it's true? We know it's true because I'm standing here and because you're sitting there. Our hearts at one time fully rejected God. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were alienated from him. We were enemies of his. But it didn't stop his pursuit. It didn't stop his love. It didn't stop him overcoming our broken and rejecting hearts. It didn't stop him saving us. It didn't stop him accepting us. It didn't stop him making us into new creations. We know that the mission of God does not fail because we've seen it in our own lives. If you're in the room today and maybe you don't know that rescue, maybe that's not a reality to you. Or maybe you feel like uh, the people we talked about in the synagogue in Nazareth, maybe there's something in front of your field of view of Christ that you just can't unsee. Maybe it has to do with Jesus. Maybe it has to do with his followers. Maybe it has to do with his church. I'm going to ask you if that's you, if you would take that thing and you would just set it aside. I'm not saying forget about it. I'm not saying ignore it. I'm saying just set it aside. And would you take time to look at everything else that Christ is? Look at everything else about his character and nature. And then if he takes care of that thing for you, then you're free to receive what he's offering you. You're free to receive that he's offering you acceptance, and he's offering you love, and he's offering you the ability to be a new creation in him, and he's offering you to come along on his mission that won't fail. Let me pray for us this morning. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I think... Um, I think we feel it in a thousand ways, different kinds of rejection, Father, different kinds of difficulty in our life. Even if that rejection comes from within, even if it's our own spirit and nature that's actively fighting and trying to reject the truths of Scripture, where we can't believe that you would love us, where we can't believe that we are your sons and daughters, where we can't believe that we matter to you. I just ask that you would remind us that you're stronger than all of that and that you would remind us of your truths. Remind us that all throughout your word, all throughout history past, you are a God who does not stop in those moments. 
You are a God who presses on. You are a God who presses in. You are a God who is incredibly faithful. And you've even shown us that in Christ. The ultimate rejection is crucifixion, is resurrection. We see that your love for us doesn't stop. It keeps coming. And we see that in the life, the person, the work, the message of Jesus Christ. And I just ask that you would strengthen our hearts by your spirit. You would draw us to repentance continually. And you would empower us for your mission. And you would encourage us and uplift us when we do encounter rejection. We love you. We ask it in Christ's name. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.